You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. We finish off a, an Easter series today, a, a mini Easter series that we began last week on Palm Sunday when we looked at Jesus entering Jerusalem, that triumphal entry. And last Sunday, we considered the kind of king and Messiah Jesus is. And we ended with the question, what kind of king and Messiah do you have in mind? What kind of image of Jesus, the king and Messiah, do you have two days ago? On Good Friday, we looked at Jesus on the cross as he hung between two thieves, and we considered who we are, who Jesus isn't, and what heaven is. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to fast forward to today, Easter Sunday, the day that Jesus rose from the grave, and I want to take you to Luke again, Luke chapter 24 this time, and we're looking at verses 36 to the end of the chapter, in fact, to the very end of the gospel itself. It's a a longer section, and so to help us, I'm going to break it down into four, four different sections. The first, I'm calling the reappearance of Jesus. Take a look at verses 36 and 37. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Now, we're just dropping into this text, and a little bit of context is important, so let me set the stage for you. In Luke's gospel, this is the third appearance of Jesus post-resurrection. The first appearance of Jesus post-resurrection takes place with two Marys and Joanna, and the second appearance of Jesus post-resurrection takes place with two unnamed disciples on the road to Emmaus, not disciples as in part of the group of 12, just two other additional disciples that, that meet Jesus, have a great Bible study with Jesus. And actually that appearance with those two disciples sets the stage for this one. For those two disciples, they book it to Jerusalem looking for the remaining 11 other disciples. Judas obviously is gone by this time. And they find them. And, and that's what we have here in verse 36. We have the 11 remaining disciples, the two disciples in addition to them, and some others as well. That's the them, that's the they in verse 36, and that's what they're talking about. But, but let's ask the question, what were the disciples, meaning the 11, doing there when they found them? Well, they were, they were hiding out. That's what they were doing there. They were living in fear. They were behind locked doors for fear of being arrested like Jesus was arrested and perhaps tried and convicted and killed like Jesus was tried and convicted and killed. And so they're hiding out. That's what they're doing there. In fact, John, in, in John's gospel of this event, he, he records this. You can read this on the screen. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the di disciples were, were for fear of the Jews, Jewish leadership, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. In, in other words, Jesus just appeared. He didn't sneak in. The doors were locked. Jesus just showed up Star Trek-like. 
I don't know if anybody knows anything about Star Trek anymore, but he just appears. He actually, he actually does the opposite of what he did with those two disciples back in verse 31. Just go up the, the page in your Bible or scroll up on your phone and we read in verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he, that's Jesus, vanished from their sight. But here he reappears and he says to them, peace be with you, shalom is what he says to them. This, this is more than a, a simple greeting. This, in fact, now in light of Jesus' resurrection is the reality. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, true peace, eternal peace with God is now attainable. It's now offered to us. In fact, when you look at Jesus post-resurrection, peace is his primary message. Because again, peace is now the reality because of his work on the cross and his raising from, from the grave. If, if you've been awake, if you've been listening in our Ephesians series, you'll remember what it says to us, what Paul writes to us in Ephesians 3. Again, you can read this on the screen. For he himself, that's Jesus, he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Remember talking about that, talking about the dividing wall of hostility between Jewish people and Gentile people, but also the dividing wall of hostility between us and God. And he came and he preached peace to you who are far off, meaning the Gentiles, and peace to those who are near, meaning the Jewish, Jewish people as well. So that's what he offers. He comes in, he appears, and he brings peace, but their reaction is anything but peaceful. They're, they're freaked out, it says. They're startled, they're frightened, and, and not because Jesus surprised them, but because they, when they see Jesus, they think they're seeing a ghost. They think they're seeing something like a spirit. But why? Why do they think they are seeing a spirit? Well, the reason is because in the same way this group of people had no room for a dying Messiah, now they have no room for a resurrected one. That's why they were locked up. That, that's why they were hiding out. That's why the doors are locked. That's why they're fearful and full of doubt. They have no room for that kind of Messiah. In fact, if you fast forward to our day in, or any day between then and now, that's the reason today and every day why people have no peace. It's because they have no room for the resurrection. And when you have no room for the resurrection, peace is removed and it brings in fear. If you are tuning in today and you don't have much intel, you don't have a lot of information or, or what have you about Easter in particular, you don't know what Easter is all about or the Christian faith in general, let me explain very briefly why the resurrection of Jesus is the epicenter. It, it's ground zero for the Christian faith. What, what is celebrated on this day is, is paramount. It's of first importance to the Christian faith. So why? Why is that? Well, I'll give you some reasons why. The first, because the resurrection evidences the immense power of God. To believe in the resurrection is to believe in God. 
If God exists, and if he created the universe, and he has power over it, he has the power to raise the dead. And if he doesn't have that power to raise the dead, then he's not worth our faith, and he's not worth our worship. Second, the resurrection of Jesus validates what Jesus taught and validates who Jesus claimed to be, namely the Son of God and Messiah. Jesus himself says that his resurrection was the sign from heaven that authenticated his ministry. In Romans chapter 1, verse 4, Paul the writer there says that it's the resurrection of Jesus that declared him to be the Son of God. That his birth declared him to be the Son of David, but his resurrection declared him to be the Son of God. Third, the resurrection of Jesus proves his sinless character. I'm, I'm taking this out of Psalm 16, verse 10, which is quoted in Acts chapter 13, that God's Holy One, namely Jesus, would never see corruption. And Jesus never saw corruption, even though he, he died and, and was buried. Fourth, without the resurrection of Jesus, we have no justification before God. If Jesus didn't rise from the grave, none of us would have the ability to be right with God, to be in relationship with God. Why is that? Well, because of what we read in Romans 4.25, that Jesus was delivered up, literally, up for our transgressions, but he was raised for our justification. God, God raising Jesus from the grave is God's stamp of approval on Jesus' death. This is why Paul writes in Romans chapter 10 that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. But if God didn't raise Jesus from the dead, we wouldn't be. It's what justifies us. That, in fact, that verse, Romans 10, 9, is what I ask the individuals getting baptized right before we immerse them in the water. Do you confess? Do you believe? Based on your confession, then, we baptize you. You'll hear that this afternoon if you're down at the beach. Fifth, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And in that statement, Midtown, hear that. In that statement, he claims to be the source of both. There is no resurrection apart from Jesus. There's no eternal life thereafter apart from Jesus because he gives, he does more than just simply give life. He is life. That's why the grave couldn't contain him. Jesus is life and death has no power over him. By way of his resurrection, in addition to this, Jesus not only paid the penalty of sin, which he did when he died on the cross, but he destroyed the power that sin has. What is the power that sin has? We just, we just sang about it. Pat just quoted the text, the power of sin is death, but by way of Jesus' resurrection, we've had victory over that power, which is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Why are you still in your sins? Because we haven't destroyed the power if he hasn't been raised. Our sin has power over us still, but no longer. Where, where is your power? Oh, death, it's been destroyed. Jesus killed it. Sixth, couple more. Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Meaning, 
If you are in Christ, his resurrection is your resurrection. He's the first fruits. What's that idea of first fruits? First fruits, there is a feast of first fruits in the Old Testament that you read of that took place around harvest time. So you, you, know, you have your acreage, you grow your crop, harvest comes. What you would do is you would take a part of your harvest and you would sacrifice it. So what is being sacrificed? The first fruits. Who's the first fruits? Jesus. He's been sacrificed. But who are we? We're the harvest that follows. If you have first fruits, you have a guaranteed harvest, right? You don't just take that out of nowhere. You're taking it from somewhere. So Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits is our resurrection as well. That's what baptism is all about, at least in part, I should say. We, we, we put people under the water, but we don't, you know, we don't keep them there because we would get arrested. We bring them out of the water, right? Why? Because Jesus went to the grave and he came out of the grave and his death is our death. We're buried with him, but then we're raised with him. And baptism is that beautiful picture of what has happened. It's, it's wonderful. And finally, why is the resurrection of Jesus so paramount, so crucial? Why is it ground zero? Because the resurrection of Jesus is the central event that strengthens us for life and ministry. It's what gives us confidence. 1 Corinthians 15 is known as the resurrection chapter. Uh, more time is spent on the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, our resurrection body, and all of that in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul just takes a ton of time just detailing the ramifications and the implications of the resurrection. And then he gets to the very last verse of 1 Corinthians 15, and you can read this on the screen. Paul writes, therefore, that's such an important therefore. That therefore points back to all of what he's talked about when it pertains, as it pertains to the resurrection. And he says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Why? Because of the resurrection. That's why stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Why? Because of the resurrection. Because in death, things only get better for us. That's why. So stand firm. Let nothing move you. It's a a sweet therefore. We're supposed to live on that side of therefore. But going back to our text, those in the room had no room for it. Which leads to a second section, a section that I'm calling the reassurance of Jesus. Take a look at verses 38 to 43. And Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? And why why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still while they still disbelieved for joy they were, and, and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. Do you know what I love about Jesus here in that text that I just read? What I love about Jesus here is he's the same Jesus here. Do you know what I mean? 
let, let me explain myself. If I was Jesus here, and thank God I'm not, like literally, thank God that I am not. If I was Jesus here, do you know what I would say? Hey guys, thanks for bailing on me. That's what I would say. That the last time Jesus saw this group of people, they bailed on him. They ran for the hills. I'd be like, hey guys, thanks for falling asleep in the garden. Thanks for bailing on me. Thanks for running for the hills. Thanks for leaving me high and dry. Hey Peter, cock-a-doodle-doo, man. That's, that's what I would be saying, but that's not Jesus. And thank God that's not Jesus because Jesus here, he, re he reacts with the disciples like he reacts elsewhere in the Gospels. Sympathetic with the weak and, and patient with the faint-hearted. He, he doesn't ignore their, their doubt and disbelief, but instead of chastising them, he, he reassures them. In fact, he reveals himself to them. They think they're seeing a spirit, but Jesus shows them that he is anything but, and he does that in three ways. First, he has them touch him. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have, he says in verse 39. Secondly, he eats in front of them. He took a piece of fish and ate before them. Very healthy fish, by the way. Jesus eats very healthily broiled fish. Not deep fried, that's good for Jesus. Jesus chewed the fish, he swallowed the fish. And third, he showed them his scars. See my hands and my feet, it is I myself, he says in verse 39. And therefore, I want to be very, very clear about this. The resurrection of Jesus was a physical resurrection. It was not merely a so-called spiritual resurrection. That church is in this city this morning are teaching some of them. Or the resurrection was simply a resurrection in the hearts and minds of the disciples. Jesus is taking painstaking measures to ensure that they understand that he is physically risen. Touch me. Watch me eat. See my scars. That's why John, the disciple John, the apostle John, in his first epistle, he begins in verse 1 of chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, meaning Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands. Remember Jesus one-on-one -on -one with Thomas, doubting Thomas? Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I, I've heard someone say once that the only scars we will see in heaven will be the scars of Jesus. That may be, I don't know. But I, I do know what John saw when he had a glimpse into heaven in writing the book of Revelation. He saw a lamb there but a lamb that looked like it, it, it had been slain. That's, that's our Jesus. What do we learn about the resurrection body in all of this? Well, on one hand, when we look at Jesus' body, and remember, his resurrection will be our resurrection, there's a supernatural quality to it in that he could vanish and he could reappear out of nowhere. Is that something that will be our Ours as well? I don't know. I don't know. That'd be great. Just, I want to be in Maui, right? That'd be great. Um, but 
Not only is there a, a supernatural quality to it, there's a physicality to it as well in that Jesus was and remains today flesh and bones. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, again, that resurrection chapter, Paul gives us some other insight when saying that our resurrection bodies will be imperishable and raised in glory and in power. He writes that our resurrection bodies will be spiritual, not meaning that we will be a spirit, but that our bodies will be otherworldly. The imagery Paul uses, and I talked about this just a couple of weeks ago, is that our bodies now versus our bodies then will be the difference between a seed and what a seed produces. So an acorn versus an oak tree. It's as if when we die and are buried, we're planted. And at the return of Jesus, that seed will produce that glorified body. Right now when people die and they're in the presence of the Lord, they don't yet have that, have that glorified body. That is coming. But when it comes, we get a, a great picture of what it will look like and be like. And, and yet, let's make sure we understand, we will still have bodies. And we will be recognizable. And we will eat. In fact, the first thing that we do when we enter Jesus' kingdom is we sit down and we have a banquet and the book of Isaiah tells us that we're going to eat great meat in heaven. No tofu in heaven. Great meat in heaven and we're going to drink great wine. No welches in heaven. Great meat, great wine in heaven. We will eat and we will celebrate. It's fantastic. Paul writes elsewhere in 2 Corinthians 5, and you can read this on the screen. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. I, I like how the New Living Translation translates that verse. I'll read it for you. It's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. One more from Paul. In Romans 8, verses 22 and 23, we read, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the firstfruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's what Paul's groaning for. Early in the history of the church, one of the heresies that made inroads shows up early second century is something called Gnosticism. In very basic terms, there's many levels and layers to it, but in very basic terms, Gnosticism held that the flesh was bad and the spirit was good. Now, different paths were taken off the flesh is bad sort of idea. Some people went to painstaking, painstaking measures to really deny the flesh. Asceticism and those types of things, really abuse of the body, not eating certain things, not having sex, meaning don't get married because sex is involved and you don't want to have pleasure. Or the other way was if the body doesn't matter, then, you know, I can do whatever I want because really at the end of the day, only the spirit makes any difference at all. So flesh bad, spirit good, that's Gnosticism. 
But sadly, even though that showed up 2,000 or 1,900 years ago or so, it still has a tendency to weave its way into the church today. Flesh bad, spirit good. And that's a sad mindset. Because we worship a creator who said of his creation, it's good, who said of us, it's very good. And therefore, when Jesus returns, he returns not to rid us of our flesh, but to redeem our flesh, to further clothe us and have what is mortal swallowed up by life eternal to live perfectly and fully and physically in the way that we were we were originally created to live, and, and not to return to Adam and Eve and how they lived, much better than that, because there's going to be no serpent in our garden. There's, no, there's going to be no temptation towards sin. In fact, we will not even have a nature that has a proclivity towards sin. It's better by far. It's wonderful. I had somebody ask me, by the way, I don't know if I should say this, I'm going to get in trouble. I had somebody ask me, this is going way back, Norm, if we eat in heaven, are we going to go to the bathroom in heaven? My answer was, yes, but it just won't smell. I know I'm going to get emails when I say that. Just email Pat, he'll, he'll deal with those emails. Go back to verse 4, I don't know why I said that. Verse 41. Verse 41, go back there, because uh, when I read it, it, it's a confusing verse, it, it it's kind of wordy, it's, it's strange, but it's also a verse of transition. Let me read it. Let me read it one more time for us. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? What does that mean? They disbelieved, but they had joy and they were marveling. What is, how do we make sense of this? Well, what I believe we have here in verse 41 is that this group, these disciples, some of the, the 11 and others, they were in awe and wonder over what was taking place, but they had no category for it. They didn't have a resurrection file that they could click on and open. They, they, hadn't, they had nothing like that at all. And yet, even though they had no category for it, they were full of joy full of joy because the last time they saw Jesus, Jesus was beaten and scourged and whipped and he was on a cross. And now, three days later, he's with them in the room eating fish. And so they can't compute it. They can't figure it out. And I call this, however, a verse of transition because it's here that a re-engagement takes place. And that's the third section that I'm wanting you to look at in verses 44 to 49. The disciples' re-engagement takes place coming out of this verse. In other words, let me just read it for us. Verses 44 to 49. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's their entire Bible, that's what we would call the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of, of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. 
And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Do you hear the re-engagement? What Jesus is saying to his disciples is, you aren't supposed to be huddled here. You're not to be living in fear. You are to be witnesses. Starting in Jerusalem, but to all nations, to the ends of the earth. In verse 48, Jesus says, you are to be witnesses of these things. What things, Jesus? My life, my death, and my resurrection. You are to bear witness of this and to help them re-engage Jesus reminds them of several things. One, he reminds them of what he had previously taught them. He also reminds them that he is the center of God's story, that that although the name Jesus doesn't show up in their scriptures, what again we call the Old Testament, he is all over it from very beginning to very end, and he fulfills it all. And what Jesus says is it must be fulfilled because it's not ink on a page, it's It's the word of God. By the way, if you go to the second to the last book in the the New Testament, the book of Jude, this reality that Jesus is there from beginning to end, even though the name Jesus doesn't show up, is why Jude writes in Jude verse 5, Jude only one chapter, he writes that Jesus actually led the Israelites out of Egypt. It's why Paul writes that the rock that the Israelites struck in the wilderness was Christ. It's why Jesus says that Abraham saw my day and was glad. It's why Paul writes of things like feasts and the Sabbath and things like that and says that those things before Christ were shadows and the reality is Christ. To borrow from my boy, Tim Keller, he puts it this way. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who, though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out, but not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void, not knowing whither he went, to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who is not just offered up by his father on the mount but was truly sacrificed for us. And and when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son, whom you love from me. Now we can look at God taking up his son onto a a different mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know that, that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice. We deserve so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who, at the right hand of the king, forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true better and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us living water for our desert journey. Jesus is the true and better Job, uh, the truly innocent sufferer who then intercedes for us and saves his stupid friends. 
Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace but lost the ultimate and heavenly one who who didn't just risk his life but gave his life to save his people. And Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real Passover lamb. Innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple. He's the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. You see, the Bible's not about you or me. The the Bible's about Jesus. He's the hero of the story. As he said said to his opponents, you search the scriptures, the scriptures point to me and bear witness of me. So Jesus reminds here, going back to our text, he reminds them of that. But what he also does, and this is for us too, he reminds them that it's not enough to be taught even by Jesus but they must be enlightened, which is what Jesus does in verse 45. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus also tells them that the central part of the message that they are to proclaim is the cross and the resurrection and the repentance and, and, and proclaim, proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins, which when you read the sequel to Luke, which is the book of Acts, same writer, That is the message that you hear over and over again. By the way, what what does repentance mean? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance means to turn. Repentance doesn't simply mean that we feel bad for our sins. It doesn't simply mean that we ask for forgiveness for our sins. Feeling bad and asking forgiveness is, is... is not a bad thing, obviously, but that's not what repentance is. Repentance means that we turn from the bad and we go towards the good. It's like a battery. It has a positive and a negative to it. We turn from the bad, that, that sin in our past. Yes, we ask for forgiveness, but we turn from it and we turn to the good. That's, that's true repentance. Judas felt bad for his sin, but he never turned to the positive. Peter felt bad for his sin of denial and returned to Jesus and followed Jesus. That's repentance. And finally, Jesus ends this call for re-engagement by telling them that none of this is to be done in the flesh. Look at verse 49 one more time. I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That's the same call for us. Doesn't matter what you've seen, doesn't matter what you've been taught, or even what kind of spiritual illumination you've had, what Jesus is calling the disciples to do, what he calls us to do, demands that we be clothed with power, the power of the Holy Spirit. As Luke writes in in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria until the end of the earth. So what do we have so far? We have Jesus reappearing. We have Jesus reassuring. 
We have the disciples re-engaging. And finally, we have Jesus returning. But so do, so, do the, so, do the, so do the disciples. Look at verses 50 to 53. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Jesus returns, they return. When I was going to school in in Los Angeles uh, on a spring break, a, a few of my friends took a road trip, they headed back east. Um, they wanted to get as much life out of the, the break as possible, and, and so they decided to come back at the last possible moment to drive through the night to get back to class on a, on a Monday morning. There are four of them, small car, driving uh, in s- southern Arizona on a small two-lane highway, heading back, heading back to the coast. Like I said, it was the middle of the night. One guy's driving. The other three are sleeping. He, he, he needs to change. He needs somebody to take over driving. They also needed to get some gas. So they were driving on this small two-lane highway. He saw a gas station up on the other side of the road coming up. And so he, pulled, he had to pull a U-turn to get, to get gas for his car. Just a small little gas station, two pumps out front. He starts pumping gas, but he wanted to change, let somebody else drive. He was tired, so he got somebody from the back seat, woke him up, said, you drive now. He went into the back seat, fell asleep right away. He was so tired. He made one mistake, however. He didn't tell the new driver that he had pulled a U-turn to get into the gas station. And so for the next three hours, the driver, the new driver, drove the car in the wrong direction. How did he discover he had made a mistake and was going in the wrong direction? Well, the answer is the rising of the sun. This college-educated guy knew enough to know that the sun rises in the east and they, they need to head west. And so in that moment with the rising of the sun, he, he did another U-turn and started going in the right direction. Our text begins with a group of disciples huddled, living in fear, full of doubt, startled, under lock and key. And at the end, full of joy, full of worship, and now continually meeting in the temple courts in the presence of everybody. What happened? What changed their direction? You know the answer. There's only one answer. The rising of the sun. Let me pray. And Jesus, it's, it's your resurrection that that changes all of our direction. It takes us from going that way to this way to taking and removing fear and replacing it with joy. Jesus, because of your resurrection, we can live on that side of therefore that we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, that we can be people who stand firm 
that don't shrink back, that can know that what we do here for your sake is not vain labor. Holy Spirit, would you, would you soften our hearts and minds to this message even more, even if they're soft now, even softer? God in flesh coming, dying, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, laid in a, laid in a tomb, in our place for us, but not staying there, killing death for us. So that on, on this side of heaven, we can live with assurance, and on that side, we can live in the full reality forever. Jesus, we obviously thank you, bless you, and worship you for what we're celebrating today, but we want to do more than that. We want to live in light of it. We want, we want to, to bear witness of it. When we go down to the beach this afternoon, we're going to bear witness of it to the world that this last year has been living in so much fear and angst. So we want to bear witness today, but we want to live in light of it always. We want to be those people. So thank you. We bless you. We love you. We worship you. But help us by way of the spirit that you sent to help us live in light of it always. And I pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to mtownchurch.ca.